Hello and welcome to the Spine Nerd Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovis. And my name is Dr. Jason Kung. And thank you guys for joining us today. Dr. Kung, thank you for joining us as well. Um, I feel like I have to stop welcoming you now that you're the official co-host of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> co-host, very nice. Sidekick, maybe. Uh, yeah, sidekick. thank you. I like that. I've, thank never, you. I've never had a sidekick before. I like, I like that. Um, so it's uh, currently the middle of February, 2024. And, you know, one of the things that happened last month that I didn't get to partake in was the North American Neuromodulation Society meeting. Um, and I think we had talked about it a little bit at last one that you were going to be headed there. Uh, so wanted to pick your brain. How, how was the meeting? Yeah, I, I went, it was just for, you know, about 36 hours. So just a quick trip. Thankfully we live close to Las Vegas. So a quick flight in and out. Um, it was great catching up with a lot of, uh, folks in the field from, from fellowship and just from, from talking with folks about the space and meeting people that I've never met, uh, in person, but spoken with virtually. So I think the catching up part was really nice. It is yeah. you know, definitely a good place to do that. Um, and, you know, checking out the exhibit hall and the, um, all the new, just so many new companies out there. It was interesting. Um, uh, I think the, the theme for me was uh, SI Joint Fusion. Uh, yeah. it, it, it did seem like, you know, you, everywhere you turn was a new Sacred Joint Fusion uh, company, uh, mostly the posterior approach uh, and some with the um, oblique screws. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that was taking up maybe like 25% of the exhibit hall. It was uh, wow. very interesting. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's been, it's been a few years since I've been to the meeting, but I believe um, in 2020, there was two companies that did SI joint fusion. Um, and I, I, you know, as SI bone was there and I believe pain tech was there and I don't think there was mm -hmm. just anybody else. Corner lock might've been there at that time. Um, yeah, definitely not anywhere near a quarter of the space on the floor. I mean, you're talking about, you know, very, very small booths off, off to the sides. Um, so interesting difference in the, in the development of the space. Yeah. I didn't see any, uh, you know, big announcements as far as the neuromodulation space, uh, this, this meeting, you know, there wasn't any, you know, um, major new, uh, waveform, um, you know, uh, we're going to get into a little bit about the closed loop technology. So, um, you know, obviously uh, some of those players were there, uh, but, I, you know, I didn't see anything from that standpoint that was a major breakthrough. But, um, you know, I think it, there was a lot of MRI compatibility discussion. Um, uh, so I think that was probably, you know, the highlight as far as neuromodulation, I guess, you know, moving away from just, you know, who's got the best waveform to, other metrics that also play into the factor factors of, you know, whether a patient gets relief or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I, probably one of the best things I would say of the development of the space. And, you know, obviously with, as the technology is developed, I think that there is so much great technology in the space and there's so many, you know, great um, things for patients to have exposure to or have access to. Um, but yes, the fact that it's not, you know, this waveform versus that waveform, and that's the end all be all of the conversation. But realizing that there's so many other factors that play into patient success, right? And how well, you know, these devices actually do as we're treating patients rather than, you know, thinking theoretically about, you know, what what's what's best in, in a vacuum, you know, this this sign or this sign or 
sign. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I think that's I think that is a, a, a maturation, hopefully, of the space is you know being able to really understand that there's many factors that play into patient success, um, and mm -hmm. obviously MRI being a really big uh, factor. I guess maybe depending on. Uh, who's speaking on on stage more or less of a factor, but I, you know, I think both of us would agree that MRI is a pretty uh, significant uh, thing that we think about when we think about our patients. Yeah, that uh, yeah, I guess that kind of parlays it into this uh, the study that came out last year um, was by Mullins et al. Uh, it was a retrospective review, uh, basically looking at all the MRI conditional systems, uh, specifically looking at the impedance dependent MRI conditional SCS systems. Um, so, uh, we'll just briefly go over it. Uh, I'm not going to get into too much of the weeds, but, you know, they looked at, uh, 363 cases, uh, so about 600 leads total. Um, and the interesting thing here is, you know, it, the, the lead survival time for a normal lead impedance is about 4.7 years. So I guess, you know, what that means is that in 4.7 years, that's how long a lead will stay with completely normal impedances. That's the average time. I guess, you know, after that, you can have high impedances in certain electrodes. Um, uh, so that was kind of interesting to see. Uh, uh, and then overall with those cases, um, they found that 18 and a half percent of patients had lead impedance, had very high lead impedances over 10,000 ohms. Um, most common was uh, with with one lead impedance, about forty percent. Uh, with two, I think they're talking about electrodes. I think that's what it is. one electrode. So one high impedance electrode is about forty percent. Uh, two of them was twenty two percent, and three was twelve percent. Um, and they looked at all the companies that were you know had the impedance dependent MRI conditionality. Um, and that's you know that's covering Abbott, Never and Boston. Um, so, you know, just an interesting thing to, you know, counsel patients on, and, and that's why we have redundancy. We have usually placed two leads if possible. There's multiple electrodes, uh, uh, multiple contacts, uh, to try to mitigate, you know, if one goes out, we can program around it. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, um, when they were actually looking at those, uh, quoted numbers for, um, the impedances. The, I know you said that the four and a half, uh, 4.7 years was um, the kind of overall lead survival time. Uh, but I think mm -hmm. the actual uh, 18, 20% number that you quoted was at like yeah. two and a half years. Um, if, if oh, I, okay. Um, so I think that mm -hmm. the, for the, so that, I mean, basically to kind of summarize it or put it in layman's turn, right? T roughly 20% of uh, the MRI conditional systems are not. MRI compatible at two and a half years, which is it's wild, which is, which is pretty wild, right? I mean, that's a, mm -hmm. that's definitely not something that they're going to put in the pamphlets when we're talking about uh, MRI conditionality, right? I mean, that's, um, that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty significant number. You know, I mean, I think, and then you put, if you put that side by side with the, you know, the, the studies that have looked at how many patients that need a device actually need an MRI. And I think those studies were over the next five years. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they kind of put it out in the, you know, I think it was 85% of patients, uh, would I theoretically need an MRI or would be best suited by an additional MRI, uh, within five years. And so, you know, that's, uh, that, that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty staggering 
percentage, right? To get that 18% um, of not able to utilize that MRI conditionality. Yeah, no one likes doing explants um, primarily for, you know, getting an MRI. It's, 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 you do it for the patients and they definitely need it. Um, But, you know, each time it happens for me when I have to do it, uh, it's, it's a little bit, you know, discouraging that, uh, you know, we should be really pushing for, you know, having these devices be basically MRI compatible with some very small um, um, exceptions. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that makes a, a lot of sense, and I, hopefully, it's an area that yeah, obviously I think people are paying attention to it. I mean, I think it's something that everybody talks about. Uh, it's just a matter of hopefully that technology continuing to mm-hmm. to evolve that everybody gets to that point because you know hopefully uh, people are paying attention to that number. I think it's a it's a pretty staggering number, um, and definitely something that you really do need to let patients know if uh, when using those systems. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as far as, you know, hopefully that will be standard of care uh, in the future with having these devices more friendly with MRI. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the next thing I want to at least go over, you know, it's not anything uh, hot off the presses, you know, with ECAPs or both compo- compound action potentials, but, um, you know, it wasn't also, this is not hot off, the, hot off the press from NANS this year, but the 36 month data from the evoke trial uh, came out last year. I don't think we talked about it yet, but I think it's worth discussing just because it's 36 months. That number and uh, neuromodulation haven't really been put in the same sentence for, Yeah. uh, I don't think, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't, I've never seen a study that looks out, um, you know, used to randomize double blind trials of, you know, going up to 36 months. So. I do think it's worth kind of um, going over because this technology is coming. Um, and if it is as described in the study, it's uh, it's quite remarkable as what it's able to offer patients. And for the, for the, uh, those listening that may not know uh, what ECAPS is or what the Evoke study is, uh, can you just give us a little kind of background on um, what that what that means and why it's different from uh, other forms of spinal cord stimulation? Yeah, I think, you know, the best way to describe it um, is, uh, well, at least the way that I've been describing is kind of like how the pacemaker is able to uh, both sense the intrinsic rhythm of a patient and then react to it versus um, kind of a one-sided putting in an input and then depending on the patient's subjective feelings uh, changing those inputs. And that's really been uh, all uh, neuromodulation companies right now is basically, you know, they come in, they meet with the representative, they program them based off the patient's uh, symptomatic subjective response to whatever milliamps or pulse width that they've uh, programmed and they get programs. And then, you know, sometimes we could go in and change it. Uh, It's gotten much better nowadays, but with ECAPS, uh, we're basically able to, measure how um, how strong the uh, dorsal columns are being stimulated without the patient having to tell us. Um, it, I'm not a engineer, uh, biology major, you know, pretty boring for med school applications. If you're going into med school, don't major in biology, do the pre-med <laughs> classes and do something else. Uh, but as far as I, my understanding of it, it's, uh, you know, we're, 
with um, with closed loop stimulation, we can measure how many uh, nerve fibers are being activated by a single electrical input. Uh, and it's, um, by doing this, we can use it as a proxy as to how many dorsal column fibers have been activated. Um, it's uh, we can basically measure how much of a, a charge that is needed to elicit an ECAP. Everyone's different. Um, position is different, um, patient weight, um, coughing, sneezing, those all change, um, you know, how, how much of the dorsal columns are being stimulated. And uh, when you're able to turn up and down the, uh, the electrical dose or the charge needed to stimulate it, you can basically get a more consistent activation of the uh, neural tissue and it minimizes, you know, both the um, under stimulation that people uh, will get and also the overstimulation. Yeah, so that's so, that's my my thought on, on I th I that's think that my was, understanding of it. I think I think that was very good. I would have used much simpler sure. terminology uh, to to talk about <laughs> it, um, but right evoked compound action uh, uh, potentials, and so yeah, I mean basically I, I, you hit the nail on the head in very technical terms, but right two two way feedback essentially, right? It, it senses and then it responds based off of that sensation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think anybody who has utilized a spinal stimulator has you know seen. Uh, when a patient, if they kind of move in the wrong way, especially early on, you know, and they'll talk about getting that big zap, right? That's, you know, kind of that overstimulation that, that you were describing and trying to figure out ways mm -hmm. to, to, to limit that and to make sure that, yeah, like you said, the, the consistency is there uh, of uh, appropriately stimulating uh, the neurons that we're uh, planning on, uh, neurons and glial cells. Because uh, mm -hmm. otherwise I would... Uh, I would I would remiss not to uh, give a shout out to Dr. Carvelas anytime I say glial cells. So glial cells, sir. Uh, um, so so, uh, yeah. so catch us up on the on the on the study. So we got thirty six month data. So long long term yeah. study. Um, right. Yeah. Long, the initial... longer, longer longer than most uh, spinal cord stimulators are capable of having an MRI. Um, I shouldn't say most. Twenty percent of of implanted stimulators are able of having an MRI. Right. Uh, yeah, so the original study was from 2020. That was an ID study, so they looked at you know 36 months out. Um, so just briefly, you know, it, the, the population was just patients with chronic intractable back and leg pain, refractory to conservative treatment. Uh, the intervention was uh, ECAP uh, versus um, open loop uh, spinal cord stimulation. So interesting thing, you know, the the Saluda device. Um, um, Saluda is a company that makes this uh, ECAP capable spinal cord stimulator. Um, they're able to basically program the, the, the IPG to be either in the closed loop function or in the traditional open loop function. So they basically use the same IPG and just compare them um, to each other. Um, their primary outcome was looking for a pain reduction of more than 50%. Uh, they had a bunch of secondary outcomes like you know, holistic treatment responses, physical and emotional function, et cetera, sleep, quality of life. Um, so 134 patients were enrolled, uh, 113 went for permanent implant, and they basically split them in half, and they allowed patients to cross over at 24 months. Um, so some thoughts here, uh, they found that the open-loop spinal cord stimulator patients were more likely to cross over. Um, the closed-loop patients also... Uh, crossed over and their main reason was just curiosity as what the other option was. Um, the, the, the main reason for open loop crossover was uh, hope for improved pain relief. 
um, I guess you can think that maybe the open loop patients weren't feeling it as uh, weren't getting as much benefit possibly. Um, and then 80% of the people that did cross over stayed in the uh, closed loop arm. So 80% of the people that crossed over to the closed loop decided to uh, stay there. Um, you know, they went into a little bit of the programming. I don't, um, I don't know the details on it, but regardless of whether they were in a, a closed or open loop uh, arm, uh, they were both programmed with the um, using ECAPS. Um, this is fundamentally this is fundamentally different way of programming patients. Um, so uh, they found that the battery depletion rates were about were similar. So six seven days, I think. Um, let's see other things uh, about the device. So there were explants, about 18 explants out of the 113. The most common reason was the need for an MRI, the 28% loss of efficacy. Uh, looks like that the explant for, for that reason only came from the open loop arm and then infection about 1.8 to 3.6%, which is kind of on par. Um, so really the outcomes at, at, at 36 months, uh, looking at the primary outcome of a greater than 50% reduction of back and leg pain. So that uh, outcome was significantly greater for closed loop and open loop. So 70, 78% versus 50% or 49%. Um, there, there were no non-responders in the closed loop arm and only 10% uh, in the open loop. Um, so I think, you know, I, the study is much longer and it has, you know, all the secondary outcomes, but I'm just looking at this. It's, um, I think the efficacy rates, you know, especially with a closed loop seem to be on par with some of the other, um, pivotal spinal cord simulator, uh, studies in the past. Uh, but I think the biggest thing for me was that it's 36 months and this is much, much longer time. Um, the, uh, you know, the MRI compatibility, you know, I, I think that's actually changed as of last year. I think they, uh, before it was MRI unsafe. I think now it's MRI conditional. Um, it's hard to find the details as to what's, you know, what are the, the measures that, but, uh, you know, it's, they're there. You just got to find it, uh, find it on the internet somewhere. Um, I looked at the manual. It still says it's MRI unsafe. Uh, I'm sure they're getting ready to, to update that, but just stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I think it's, I think this study was, like you said, the most interesting thing is obviously 36 months, um, you know, taking it beyond the 12 and 24 months that we generally see with most of the big studies, 80% um, responders, you know, responders being greater than 50% pain relief, you know, basically does put you in the same range as most of the other, uh, you know, with all of the studies that looked at the different waveforms, right? And so whether you're, um, so, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, to be seen what it looks like in the out in the real world. I think is is basically the the way that I take that. Um, I I think one of the things that you know that one way you could interpret this is that their programming method in uh, in open loop is inferior to the other uh, the data from the other uh, studies that have right. been. Um, I mean, obviously, this is up to thirty six months, but. You know, I think they were just under fifty percent, or right at right. Yeah, for yeah, it's at forty uh, forty nine point three. Yeah, yeah. So right, and so of of patients responding to with greater than fifty percent relief. Um, and so you know, I mean, I think maybe that's you know, obviously a, a a challenge of this study is that their 
open loop programming is is not necessarily what we've seen with the data from the other open loop programs uh, that are there. And you know, so just so everybody's aware, you know, whether we're talking of uh, high frequency stim, whether we're talking of burst, or whether we're talking DTM, um, or even I think with the uh, the fast programming that uh, Boston yeah. has recently published, I, mean, I think all of those um, in their clinical trials have responder rates generally between 70 and 80%. Uh, uh, and so, I mean, that's, you know, if you're looking at the, just the the comparison group for open loop, that does, you know, this, but the system wasn't designed to be an open loop system, right? And so I, I you know, right. that's that's where, you know, they're, they're kind of on par, like you said. And so I, I think a lot of people are really interested. I'm really interested to see what that looks, what all this looks like out in the real world, um, mm -hmm. because, you know, there's been a lot of data that has been published over the past decade of looking through neuromodulation and some of it is translated really well for a lot of people and some of it hasn't translated really well to real world outcomes uh, for for people and you know whether that's just you know I don't know something about patient selection or just the difference of uh, in an individual's hands um, you know I, I think that's that's what we're all looking and wait, anxiously waiting mm -hmm. to to be able to see. Yeah, speaking of patient selection, I know that uh, our colleagues down the road over at UC Davis and, and Stanford just published uh, like a neuromodulation like selection committee uh, yeah. thing. I thought that was a really cool study. Yeah. I think you shared that with me um, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Really cool. Great yeah. idea. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, I think it was very, um, a very interesting way of being able to look at it, right? I mean, particularly from, you know, when you think of an academic center and you think of training, like to be able to truly have a, you know, multiple brilliant minds kind of talking about you know, their, their reasoning for or against, you know, these different tools for, for some of these patients. Um, yeah, I think, that, I think it definitely makes for a very, a great learning experience, obviously for the fellows, um, but obviously just, you know, hopefully, you know, a, a way of being able to translate, you know, significantly better outcomes for, uh, for patients. You know, when I first read that, it reminded me of like the uh, you know, tumor boards when you have uh, surgeons in the room, you have the oncologists, you have the hematologists, you have the whole just multidisciplinary team and all looking at the same patients, what's the right thing to do. Um, it's it, it's it basically, you know, kind of sounds like that and it makes sense. You know, uh, I think pain medicine has a lot of catching up to do in a lot of areas. Um, but the fact that we're thinking a little bit not outside the boxes that already, you know, this kind of group thinking already exists. Uh, you know, why not translate it over to what we do? I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I, when I first uh, read that and uh, you know, I've been actually trying to reach out to uh, Dr. Scott Pritzloff, trying to see if we can get him on to kind of talk a little bit more. I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, the, just all of the changes that they've been doing at UC Davis, as far as their education is concerned. Uh, but specifically about this, uh, you know, when I texted you the study, I was like, this would be really interesting for us as a practice to do, right? I mean, yeah. know, we're we're a you know medium-sized um, you know multi-location practice, and so you know I know I, I like to reach out to Dr. Kung often whenever we're having you know some some interesting or some challenging patients and and pick brains. But I think it'd be really great. You know, we have you know ten physicians in the practice to be able to actually you know sit down and you know and we and we do that we do some of this, but I think most of right. our conversations tend to be. Um, less procedurally based uh, and and tend to be more focused on you know mm -hmm. uh, some of the other 
difficult aspects of patient care. Um, and so right. I think, you know, to be able to present some of these cases and talk through them um, can definitely be great for uh, some of our younger uh, physicians, uh, but also just great for all of us to, you know, really understand, you know, different ways of using it, right? Because, you know, we, we all trained in different places, we all have different experience and, you know, being able to see like, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've had a patient with, you know, chemo induced neuropathy that actually did really well with, with this and with these settings and, you know, or, or something along those lines, because, you know, we, there are many things that we treat that are, um, you know, pretty challenging and, you know, that are, you know, there's definitely not, you know, a large randomized controlled uh, trial for every single diagnosis, you know, you know, chemo induced neuropathy mm -hmm. as one of them. Right. I mean, you know, we have indications for diabetic peripheral neuropathy because there's, you know, the volume of patients is there, but it, it becomes a lot harder when you start extrapolating that to some other things. Yeah, I think, you know, the, when I went into private practice, uh, you know, I had another job before and, uh, you know, it was, I, I kind of felt like I was on my own a little bit, just uh, figuring it out. Um, and, you know, now with spina nerve, it's been, you know, I definitely have the, you know, I can reach out to you. We have, you know, set, set time to kind of talk to every, basically all the providers in practice. So, you know, I think in, you know, just because you go into private practice, it does not mean that you're going to be on your own and you're just going to have to figure it out by yourself. I mean, you can set up something where you're kind of working as a collective, as a team, you know, similar to academics, uh, you know, obviously different in a lot of ways, but to have uh, someone look at how you're, um, how you're treating a patient, whether it's, they think it's the right way, whether you know, there's better ways to do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I would be interested. You know, we should, maybe we should get this, uh, you know, we should definitely try to work this into our, our practice. I think that'll be a really cool thing. Yeah, yeah, and and that's and that's one of the awesome things about you know uh, people like UC Davis and Stanford and, and and Scott and their whole team over there. You know, being able to you know lead the way, right? Give us an example of like what they're working on and and publishing in it, so that way we can kind of extrapolate that and find ways to be able to uh, incorporate that in uh, in our practice. You know, so that we can keep getting better, uh, and so that we can keep trying to deliver you know better uh, outcomes and, and better care for for our patients. Um, so Scott, if you're, I know at some point you'll probably hear this, if not your fellows will hear this and they're going to know that I'm talking to you. Um, cause I know your <laughs> fellows listen, um, <laughs> but, but we'll, we'll have you, we'll have you on the show soon. Cause I do, I do, I do think that a lot of the things that you guys have been doing is are really interesting. And, and, and this being one of the, sure. one of the most interesting ones. Are we, uh, are we studied out or should we go over you, this you have, other? Yeah. You have one more you want to go over? I don't think we need to go into too much detail on this one. Uh, uh, I just thought it was an interesting one uh, that I haven't seen anything looking at paraspinal muscle atrophy and uh, how it affects uh, your vertebral end plates. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Great. That, that, I like that. I like that study too. I, we, I remember we did talk about that one. Uh, now yeah. here's, here's a question. Can you pronounce the name so that way you can um, properly quote the study or do we just have to reference that in the show notes? Uh, as a way to save face and not butcher uh, <laughs> our colleagues across the pond. And um, no, that's fair. All right, guys, <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, all four studies that we've talked about uh, will be in the show yeah. notes uh, today. Um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Didn't, didn't mean to interrupt. I just was wondering if you were going to try to take a stab at that last name. <laughs> uh, so it, it's, 
it's just it's a um it's a three-year longitudinal retrospective analysis of just basically looking at the association between the paraspinal muscles and uh end plate degeneration um you know they go into a little bit of you know how the paraspinal muscles kind of act as like a counter support to the spine similar to like a crane has that counterweight on the other side versus the other side where it's doing all the work um so you know I, it, there's been a lot of research into you know paraspinal muscles and how they're how they can be a, a pain generator. I know there's a lot of companies out there that are you know, specifically targeting uh, you know, mechanical back pain from this general area. Uh, but this study was looking, just uh, seeing uh, what the association was with end plate degeneration. And they assessed it by a total end plate score. And then they also looked at the, the fatty infiltration of the paraspinal muscles. Um, and uh, it looks like the, the fatty infiltration of the paraspinal muscles was significantly associated with the total end plate score um, and also the progression of end plate degeneration. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to get into too much with the rest of the study, but there's some nice pictures on there. Um, you know, I know we've talked about, um, uh, you know, basic tibial nerve ablation a few times on our pod this year. But I think this is just something to, to, you know, also know that, you know, if you see it on your MRI, you know, you can still, you know, physical therapy is still a cornerstone, uh, no matter what we do, no matter if we burn the basal nerve or do a stimulator. I mean, you have to work on these paraspinal muscles because the more fatty atrophy uh, that goes into it, the more uh, degeneration in the spine, which, you know, which makes logical sense to me. Uh, but um, just to see it in this, uh, you know, with pictures and so with this, um, with this study, I think it was really, uh, you know, it's a good insight. Yeah. One, one of the things I really found interesting about this study was, I mean, A, just the rate, right? I mean, I, I don't know how much any of us think that you can see that significant of changes in three years. Um, and so, I mean, to have a, a pretty significant uh, change in you know, the actual amount of end plate uh, mm. degeneration in, in a relatively short time. Um, Cause the patients weren't, weren't that old. I think they were or late fifties, no, 60 ish. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the median age was, I mean, uh, the median BMI was 25. Yeah. So not, also. not, su not super large patients, you know, and um, you know, this is and not a, not an American population. Um, mm -hmm. And, it, and, and so not super old, not super ob overweight. Um, but like a pretty significant change in a relatively short amount of time, right? Um, and but and what they used for fatty infiltration was forty percent. Um, and you know, for better or worse, you know, here in America, when we're looking at MRIs, um, I, I I would say that probably every, almost every single MRI that I look at has more than forty percent fatty infiltration into the paraspinal muscles, right? I mean, there's yeah, it is very rare. Uh, you know, I probably probably rare enough that I actually notice when there's not fatty infiltration that much fatty infiltration uh, into the muscles, or when the uh, par paraspinal muscles aren't uh, significantly undersized uh, compared to what you would expect uh, for for that size of a person. Um, you know, and so you know, like obviously for for our patient po patient population. Like this is this is everybody, right? I mean, like this is right. there are very few patients that don't fall into uh, that demographic, and you know, for better or worse, here in America, the vast majority of the patients are going to be over a BMI of twenty five. Um, right. 
And for a lot of us, the vast majority of our patients are quite a bit older than uh, 59, right? And so you yeah. know, it's to, to see that level of progression um, in those statistics, you know, just like you said, just more things to think about, right? We're always making sure we're, we're talking about, you know, core strength and uh, working on, you know, a lot of that flexibility. I, I'll never stop telling patients to, to do some Pilates or yoga um, and, and as part of the overall plan, um, because this is, it's just such an important aspect of it. Uh, like, like you said, no matter what else we do, if we can't, if we can't at least help with that component of things, things are just going to kind of continue to mm -hmm. uh, progress, right? Glute bridge. I, I've been on the glute bridge train, both for myself, just doing that multiple times a week. And I, if you ever see me in clinic, um, that's, that's the one I'm not a physical therapist, so, but that's the one thing I recommend for patients. It's relatively simple to do. And I feel like it does activate those paraspinal muscles pretty good. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, you know, if it's, it's something simple, right? It's always just about being able to give them something simple and actionable, some, some way that we can be able to, you know, activate these muscles that obviously a lot of people aren't activating in, in, in the mm -hmm. appropriate manner. And then one day, hopefully they can uh, start to develop guns like you, Dr. Kelly. <laughs> All right. Any, Any other studies? studies? I don't think, yeah, I think, I, I think I'm studied out. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's. I might a good, be studied out. I think that's a good. Uh, I think it's a good amount. And they're all. They all yeah. kind of flowed together too. I like. I like the yeah. way that you. Uh, you set that up. I think it worked really well. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, um, you know, it'll be definitely interesting to see this year. With um, there's going to be some announcements uh, in the normal space. I think you know, with the next few months, and you know, it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out and, you know, the data coming from that, um, you know, new topics, uh, we'll be brainstorming. I guess if anyone has any ideas, they can also reach out to us. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, uh, interested to see how things continue to evolve. I think there's a lot of people paying attention to this closed loop idea and hoping that if you can kind of partner that with, you know, some of the other uh, tools that, that have already been brought, uh, to market, you know, wondering if you can just, you know, optimize the, the other waveforms or the other, the other tools that are already there. Right. And so I think that'll be really interesting to, to watch develop over uh, the rest of the year and, and into next. And, you know, hopefully, you know, just continuing to work on better and better technology and better and better options for our patients. Agreed. Awesome. Well, if you guys made it this far, thank you guys very much. That was, uh, it was, it was awesome. I hope you guys learned something. We had a nice little journal club. Um, and hopefully learned a little bit more about neuromodulation, kind of digesting, uh, you know, I think maybe not stuff that was necessarily, uh, front and center this year at NANS, but you know, anytime you're thinking about, uh, NANS, you want to talk about some of the neuromodulatory ways that we can, uh, help our patients. And so thank you guys for making this far, uh, please, uh, send a message to Dr. Kong, tell him you think he did a good job setting up our flow for this week. Um, he, he really likes to hear from you guys. I don't know if he has yet, but. I know Dr. Carvelis always would get very, uh, uh, you know, very touched when people reached out to him because he didn't know anybody ever actually listened to us talking. Um, so well, I finally updated my LinkedIn. I'm I'm so proud of you. After years, <laughs> after years, you, it was you a had, picture uh, of me in residency. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you had wow. anesthesia resident listed for a, a very long time, uh, <laughs> and so it's yeah. it's good. So you guys can see an updated picture of Dr. Kung uh, if you guys go to LinkedIn and, and you can find him there and. You know, he see what he looks like as a fully grown adult uh, instead of a, as a as a young young man as he was uh, about a month ago on on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm a 
big boy. My big boy now. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you guys so much. Uh, keep listening. Keep sharing the the ep- uh, podcast with everybody out there. Uh, and we will talk to you guys next time. See ya. Now for that legal disclaimer. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.